Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, Vice President of Bridgeport Borough Council here in southeastern Pennsylvania near Philadelphia. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I've talked to someone from every state, from Florida to Alaska, Maine to Hawaii, all points in between from borough council like myself to U.S. Senate, and every election is important. There are 500,000 elected positions in this country. A huge number of them go uncontested or poorly contested, and so I want to encourage people to run for office, and I love talking to people who have the energy to bring issues to the table, like my guest is today. Uh, Before I introduce her, um, talking about Tennessee, great state, great people, politics, and not so great lately. And that's not just because of Democrat versus Republican, but a lot of things happening there. Uh, Please check out an earlier episode with my uh, friend Gloria Johnson, who is now running for U.S. Senate, thankfully. Um, Setting a template, I think, for what Democrats can talk like across the country. And I think that this guest today could follow that as well. Her name is Afton Bain. She just won a primary uh, for the state legislature. You know how important state legislatures are to me. That's where the real power is in this country, I believe, Um, and some of the worst things happening. Also, uh, she's a social worker, political activist, and, you know, puts her money where her mouth is, or at least puts her shoes where her mouth is in terms of going canvassing and getting work done. So, Afton, thanks for talking today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Great. Well, I'm excited to talk with you because... Um, I have two kids, seven and nine, and I feel like you have as much energy yourself as they do combined. And um, where does that come from? Have you always been politically active, or is it the things that have happened in Tennessee that kind of pushed you to be as active as you are? Yeah, I think uh, my uh, personal and professional trajectory has always been one of uh, activism and community service. And uh, in terms of the energy, uh, as I'm <laughs> drinking an energy drink, um, it's been, I think, this year has been the most inspiring year in Tennessee politics that, that I've lived in the state. Um, and I'm really excited, I think, to harness a lot of the momentum of the Tennessee Three and bring that into my um bring that into my tenure as a, as a state representative. Um, but in terms of just, I guess, my background, uh, I grew up in East Tennessee in Appalachia. And then I went to the University of Texas, where I also got a master's degree in social work. And I think that's something that a lot of, you know, probably folks you've interviewed or as well as um, a lot of social workers across the country, you, when you think of social work, you think of clinical social work. You don't think of the policy and political social work, which is the, the track that I took. Um, abroad, working a social worker job um, when President Trump was elected. And I decided to move back to Tennessee, much to the upset of my parents, um, who said, you were never supposed to move back to this godforsaken state, <laughs> the, the buckle of the, the, the Bible belt. Um, and I said, I, I have to get into Tennessee politics. I have to get in the trenches. And lo and behold, the first person I ever met in Tennessee politics was Representative Gloria Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took her out to coffee and I said, I, you know, I just moved back. I'm from here. How do I get involved? She led me to my first organizing job, which was um, a Medicaid expansion organizer and protecting the ACA. So I was going out in the haulers of, of East Tennessee um, in these rural communities and talking about the benefits of the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. Um, and then I was hired by, I'm sure, a group you're familiar with, Indivisible. 
when I was the Kentucky and Tennessee organizer. Um, and now I do, um, I work for another organization at the federal level that deals with rural economic development and, and rural power building. Um, but, and then I don't know if you wanted to dig into why I decided to run. Yes, <laughs> maybe- that's important. I want to know why you're running for office. <laughs> Well, I, I think I'm someone who never wanted to run for office, but, um, and I think this has happened probably in the last decade with a lot of young women, is I had a snapped moment. Um, so during April, as all eyes were on Tennessee and the Tennessee Three, I, along with a few fellow organizers, planned the day's activities of April 6th, which was the day of the expulsions of Representative Justin Pearson, Representative Justin Jones, and Gloria Johnson. And I'd been at the Capitol for 16 hours. It had been raining all day. I was soaking wet. I was miserable. Um, and my job at the end of the day was planning the final press conference of the night. And so we had all of these major news stations, CNN, MSNBC, I mean, everyone, all eyes were on Tennessee. I planned this beautiful backdrop of the press conference with all of these like multiracial, multigenerational Tennesseans, you know, Tennessee constituency. And I was waiting for the Tennessee Three to show up to speak to the world about the day and and how this is, you know, the dismantling of our democracy. I was holding face uh, a few white male legislators from Nashville um, tried to push their way to the spotlight, of which I got really upset. And I said, listen, like, this is not, you know, your your voices aren't needed right now. Um, And they basically said, step aside, little girl. Um, this is a time for legislators. So I had a snapped moment and, uh, decided to run. And so I inevitably was going to primary my current state rep. Who's a wonderful, he he passed away. Hence the special election. He was a wonderful guy. It's just in Tennessee politics, things have shifted so dramatically to the right that I believed that the district had changed and that I offered a new voice of a generation on the heels mm-hmm. of the Tennessee three. And then, uh, my state representative passed away suddenly of a heart attack on June 5th, a special session, a special election was called. And thus, um, my, I won my primary on August 3rd. So based on all that, I, I, we need to talk about what the Tennessee three is. I know, but I think, you know, people have short term memories or maybe aren't aware, but, um, you're, you you knew you're going to get into a primary. I think a lot of people are complacent in politics, where they are like, "Look, there's a Democrat on the ballot; they're probably fine." Or even on the other side, there's a Republican on the ballot; they're probably fine. Though we've seen the last six or ten years of how primaries on the right have gone. Where, um, mm-hmm. Why do you think it's important for, especially younger people, women, etc., that they should not be complacent, and even if there's someone on the ballot, make sure that maybe there's, there is a primary challenge. Yeah, I think, I mean, Tennessee is a relic. We're still dealing with an antiquated, um, political ecosystem in which there's a lot of entrenched white politic. Um, and I thought that in my primary, I mean, for those listeners who care about primaries, um, my opponent had the backing of the entire, Democratic establishment, including all living and current mayors of Nashville, um, almost half the caucuses, um, every single Metro Council person. Um, And what that told me was that, you know, people are holding on to to a relic of the past in terms of their political analysis. And fortunately, I because I've been an organizer in Tennessee, I have seen the shift um, to the far right in a way that I feel almost much better prepared to handle it than, than my opponent. Um, 
But in terms of why, why people should run, especially in primaries, I think, you know, politics, especially in the South has been one of, um, you know, you think of like, is right. And I don't think it's, it doesn't, it's not cool. And I think that's what a lot of people like me, Anderson Clayton, who's a friend of mine, who's now the current chair of the North Carolina Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to revitalize the Democratic Party and make it younger and more female and more exciting. Um, and so I think, you know, one is you can't complain if you don't vote. And two, if you want to change something, run. And that's what I've been told my entire life. And so inevitably, I decided to do just that. Uh, what do you think about this disconnect in a way? Like there are a lot of younger, energetic voices. Uh, and w- like you said, a- Anderson in uh, North Carolina, um, I'd love to have her on to talk with because I, I have family in North Carolina. It's such a great state and needs good energy. So I'm excited for her. Um, you see some people like uh, I talked to Jasmine Crockett from Texas, young African-American woman uh, who is amazing. One of the smartest people I've talked to on this podcast now in Congress was in the state legislature. Um, you, know, you see people in Florida who the politics of Florida are terrible, but you got Anna Eskamani who's run and is a national figure. So many places where they're red states, but really great progressive champions that are fighting against that. And yet, you know, the leadership, I like Joe Biden personally. I think I'm happy with what he's doing, but there's, there's not as much enthusiasm maybe on national scale because the energy is kind of with people like you, which is great. How do you... How do you bridge that disconnect or how not maybe not you, it's not all on you, but how can we as Democrats bridge that disconnect a bit? Yeah, I think especially in Tennessee, I think young people and particularly progressive young women have been an afterthought of the party for a long time. Mm-hmm. I also because I've been an electoral organizer in the state, I know where resources go um, when it comes to election time. And um they don't go to your more, your young progressive candidates. You know, the Tennessee three have had to raise money outside of Tennessee because of just the entrenched kind of even right politic of Tennessee. Um, But I do think that we're at a moment in time where we need folks to step up. We need people to run for local office. I think especially what was just over, I mean, so just overwhelming and, 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 sentimental for me is during my primary campaign when so many young women were heading off to college they had just turned 18 um and they voted for their first time and they came running up to me and they said you're the first person i've ever voted for and i can't wait for it to be girls club Mm -hmm. at the legislature and it's you know it's that type of we're really shifting a paradigm and as you know paradigm shifts take a very long time to happen but i have seen kind of the the beginnings of that and i hope that i inspire a lot of young other young women to run across the state yeah i'm really inspired by especially when you look at nebraska with uh, megan hunt megan kavanaugh uh mary kavanaugh who uh, got um really pushed back against the abortion and trans issues there and were successful because of to an extent because of the uh the setup there, the unicameral legislature, and they're able to filibuster things for a long time. So they had, I feel like they brought an energy that a lot of other Democrats may have agreed with them, but wouldn't have gone to that effort. Yeah. And I think in my race, you know, the, my opponent is an excellent 
kind, progressive guy, but we just had two different visions for the position. Mm -hmm. And what I was offering the district was one that had a path forward in terms of what, you know, your Politico is called breaking the supermajority, which I would say differently if I wasn't talking to Politico, but breaking the supermajority, because right now I think what people don't understand about the Tennessee three is that Vox rated Tennessee as the least democratic state in the country. Mm -hmm. And don't understand is that we don't have any ability to pass popular ballot measures. If we had a Democratic governor like Kentucky, they've removed the ability for that person to pass anything by executive authority. We also are the, one of the worst states for state preemption, which is when red legislatures come in and they neuter anything that blue cities do. Um, and they tell us that you're going to accept these really bad deals. So, and we're one of those gerrymandered states in the country. And so I had coffee with a Vanderbilt political science professor a few weeks ago and I asked you know I called Tennessee an authoritarian state very loosely is it and she said yeah because the first tenet of authoritarianism is uncompetitive elections and we don't have any competitive election Mm -hmm. so I think what we're seeing is especially for those of us that have been socialized through the Trump administration and what I mean by that is a lot of us started organizing very deeply in our communities um in 2016 that we've we've grown up in a state that has become more radical, has become more far-right, and I think that's a radicalizing moment for anyone wanting to run. Yeah, you talk about breaking the supermajorities, which is kind of what they were talking about in uh, Nebraska, and I see that in a few other states, where just having the ability to stop legislation is a progressive victory. Is that something, though, when you go to talk to people, especially other women, to run for office, that that's an inspiring thing? Like, hey, if you win for the next two years... We can make things, we can stop things from being worse. Like that's kind of, that's not an enthusiastic um, pitch to me, but it's obviously very important. Is that something you think can be successful to get more people to run for office? I mean, I think it's an honest political assessment of a state like Tennessee mm-hmm. in that, you know, a lot of, I think more people who didn't have, who haven't been in the legislature and don't have a political analysis as to what's wrong is, you know, how do, the questions were, how do you work across the aisle? And it's like, well, one, when you're in a super minority, you don't have the ability to, to, for bills to be heard in committee. We don't have a quorum so that we can walk out. So, for example, your, your example of Megan Hunt stopping bad legislation, we don't even have the ability to walk out. The Republicans can pass bad bills without the Democrats because that's how little we have in, in the legislature. So, um, unfortunately, it's not an exciting assessment and it's not, I would say, a glamorous um, and motivational pitch to get involved but that's where we are and those are the people that we need to step up and do the labor to change things yeah as you say that um you you obviously need to educate people about the political process maybe someone like you is able to do that because people will listen to you um they'll identify with you and listen to that but you know when i look at what the president's done with a narrow majority 50 50 senate and then now not even having the house anymore um, but it was a narrow house and so able to get a lot of things done um, without a big majority in Congress. It would be great if he could have accomplished more. Uh, but I think a lot of people just don't see it. They, it's hard to see legislation working. and they, they just, It's easy to see the bad things. What can we do and you, as you, as me, anyone else, to be better educators to the public? So I think first and foremost, in, in deeply red states like Tennessee, what I find as... Um, as something inhibiting progress is that many Tennesseans 
base their metric, their, their metric of success in Tennessee is electoral outcomes, right? And in a, in a state like Tennessee, where in, in certain counties, you have zero democratic representation at every level of government, you are saying, when you're saying to yourself, well, I, Tennessee is only moving forward if we win elections. I think that's, that's the wrong, um, that's the wrong analysis. Analysis. And so what I've really tried to do in demystifying the political process, but also the political path forward is to say, listen, like an honest assessment is that every two years we flip one to two house seats. That's a 10 year project. So mm-hmm. that Tennessee could be on track to coming like Georgia. Um, you know, but unfortunately that's not an exciting <laughs> speech to make when you're out in rural Tennessee saying, Hey guys, like, Nothing you do in your local community, in, in your community for state and federal elections will matter. But that's really why I've tried to emphasize, especially in rural counties across the state, is that your local elections do matter. A lot of these votes are, are you know, a lot of these elections are won with less than 50 votes. Um, and that builds the bench for Democrats in a state like Tennessee, because right now we don't have access to a lot of um, are willing to step up and run in a moment of need. Well, in Tennessee, I mean, I know that people like, um, I hate to say his name, Ben Shapiro, have been talking about, like, Tennessee being the place for conservatives to live and, and like, make the, stake their claim, for example. Um, but it's in the center where, like, if you have the energy and people um, see it as moving in the right direction, you know, I can see people who are left of center or just center or even kind of right of center who are tired of Republicans in their state and their, those policies – if they see some momentum from someone like you and Gloria and Justin, like maybe they would move. It's cheaper. They can start moving things around. Like Arkansas went from a hundred percent for a Dem for Senate to a hundred percent to a Republican for Senate within like two cycles. Right. So sometimes that tipping point doesn't have to be that long if you're doing the work. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously on the democratic side like we have to build the infrastructure to sustain what we're trying to do but on the right like we've had a lot of republicans fleeing states with mask mandates during covid we don't have a state income tax so we've seen a lot of um, we've seen an influx of republicans into tennessee and these are voting republicans however i think i i was pretty shocked at the results so my election was august 3rd it was coupled with the municipal not the national municipal elections and i was thinking that Republicans have moved to Tennessee. As you mentioned, a lot of uh, far-right pundits, such as Tommy Lauren, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, um, they've all moved to Nashville during the pandemic, and they've been bringing a lot of national far-right money um, into Nashville. And so I thought, I was I was pretty shocked and pleasantly surprised when Nashville Nashville's elections on August 3rd yielded many progressive candidates. Um, and so I do think that Nashville has probably as a reactive um, response to what's happening has become more left, but I think the state as a whole is still very Republican. And I think a lot of progressive organizers say, you know, we're a non-voting state, which is very true, but I also think we're still a red state. Yeah, you you mentioned those far right people coming there. I imagine there are states or areas like Tennessee where people have been voting Republican for one issue or another, a couple things. Um, some obviously some very far right voters and there's very far left voters that exist. Um, but they didn't really expect to be voting for something too crazy. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah." Um, but now I saw your tweet. I I responded to you on Twitter, um, the other day because you shared about one Republican representative I thought was a parody account because it was like, oh, I passed legislation so that, um, everyone could get ivermectin. Um, do you think that these people 
believe the nonsense they're saying or that their base is so bonkers that they have to be equally bonkers because they're afraid of their own shadow. And does that push voters away? Yeah, I think both of those are true. I mean, the Republican Party, they're afraid of their voters. The Democrats are not. And so they have moved further right. But I will say, I think the level of, and that was something I've just been routinely disappointed in the Tennessee legislature is just the level of incompetence. Um, like I have the pedigree to be a state legislator. Like I have a master's degree from a top tier university university. I've worked at the UN I've been in politics. I'm a social worker. Um, a lot of these people own pool businesses and they're making, you know, abortion policies. (laughs) It's like, it just doesn't compute. And I do think that Trump has really created space and, um, created lots of space for the the craziness and the more extreme, um, the more extreme fringes of the party to become more mainstream. And unfortunately, as as I've mentioned, the Overton window in Tennessee politics has shifted so far to the right, which is also what I ran on is bringing that back by a lot of these moms. And we can talk about the special session, but the mothers of the kids who were, um, being were kicked out of committee rooms, were holding signs. These are people who are going to primary these these rabid extreme Republicans, and inevitably that's what we need. Like mm-hmm. we just don't have the resources in Tennessee to be primarying bad Republicans. And so if we can get a few, get rid of a few of them, flip a few seats in twenty twenty four, I think we can bring the window back to the middle. So at least there's more space and interest and compromise. So let's talk about the special session because. Unfortunately, in a really terrible way, um, one it's hard to keep track of all of the mass shootings. You know, so people for they're like, oh, the the shooting in like if I see a town trending on social media, my immediately thought is something tragic has happened. It's either a, a natural disaster or a shooting. Um, so it, just explain briefly what was a special session for, and and how does that connect to the Tennessee three? So in April, um, and the Tennessee three for your listeners were the three legislators that democratically elected legislators who were expelled for, and I I don't think people really understand just how, I mean, just how insane it was, the, the reasons for their expulsion, which there's an arbitrary line on the house floor and the three of them decided to cross it. Like there's not even, there's not even tape. Like you can't even see the line. They crossed this arbitrary line. And the Speaker of the House decided that it was time to expel them. And this is, you know, I mean, we're talking people who represent constituencies of tens of thousands of people. Um, and so, but the reason that that, that crossed that line was in response to um, students and teachers and mothers who were in the chamber um, who, who were asking for change, you know, for, them, for legislators to pass meaningful uh, gun safety reform. And so after that, the expulsions happened. And I think the governor who was, um, intimately tied to the, um, victims of the school shooting decided to hold a special session and the Tennessee legislature, um, really did not want to fulfill, uh, that request. And and honestly, they, they just seemed, I mean, it was just so chaotic. I talked to a few reporters who said, this is the most incoherent, chaotic, session I've ever been a part of in my career as a journalist. Um, there were no rooms, like no one knew where people were meeting there. We didn't know what bills were being heard. Um, and so we're just really seeing, I think, you know, they, 
the governor called a special session to, to, I think, in a performative way to deal with gun reform legislation. And then the state house and the state Senate responded with just chaos. So do you think, because like you said, it's a non-competitive state, how much of that chaos, how much of that insanity and that abuse of power is because to them, it's not abusing power. Like they, they can do what they want because there's no repercussions. Yeah. I mean, there's no accountability in the state and as someone who's gone from an advocacy organizer to saying, Hey, you know, here's really good policies. I think good policy is politics. Um, these, these legislators have to vote for this to them saying, we're never going to vote for something that benefits our district because it's a lib policy. Um, and that's been said to me multiple times in the legislature to me being radicalized to saying, okay, well, we just need to get rid of them because if they're not going to vote for a policy like Medicaid expansion, then they shouldn't be in the legislature to realizing, Oh, we are outspent by Republicans in these really, in, in these important races um, so what is the accountability? And mm-hmm. it's from an internal in the party, which I think was, it was, I think it's a, 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 a shifting, a, sh- a moment of shifting in Tennessee politics now, post special session, post school shooting, is that you have a lot of Republican, you know, mothers who say, what are you doing? And I think their eyes have been exposed. They haven't spent time in the legislature. And I think being kicked out of committee rooms for holding, not even kidding, an 8 by 11 piece of paper, being aggressively thrown out of rooms, um, I think has radicalized a lot of them in, a, in, a, um, in, a, in an exciting way. It is inspiring to see that enthusiasm, that energy from women, especially those who care, as they should, about... Um, keeping kids safe in schools and keeping kids safe in general. Um, one thing I've talked to a number of legislators about, including uh, hearing about my, my U.S. Senator John Fetterman, is mental health. And I'll be honest, we had a council meeting last year right when the um, school shooting happened in Texas, and I broke down and cried because during the meeting I was talking about it because it's just those are kids. How do you, as someone who is intimately involved and actively involved in those issues, deal with your own mental health or help these people who are energized about it to like, cause they're going to have a lot of failing, right? Like it's frustrating. How do you do, you, do you talk to them about like, Hey, take time for yourself and, and make sure that, you know, you're prepared for this because whether they're a mother or a father or just concerned, these are heavy things. Yeah. I think, I mean, there was a lot of tears shed during the special session and I think it was like, I've cried, <laughs> I've cried every single legislative session, but I think this in particular, it was, it was revealing of just so some deeply problematic and extreme underbelly of our legislature that I think was exposed and, and broken and, 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 you know, brought to the forefront I work with a lot of organizers in Tennessee that have been involved in organizing protests and rallies and pushing back against bad legislation for the past six years. I think a lot of us have nervous breakdowns. Uh, A lot of us have had to go, you know, leave the state. A lot of my friends have moved because things have been so awful for them, especially those that have trans uh, family members. Mm -hmm. So it is, I mean, it's, it's a very scary time to be living here. It's also just the, fascism and authoritarianism could break anyone. Um, and I don't think like people in blue states truly understand like what it feels like living here. It is suffocating. Mm -hmm. It is waking up. Like I had my oil changed a few months ago 
And you know that little sticker that's put up in the like top left corner telling you when you're when you need to get an oil change again. And I looked up and the words Jesus loves you were written at least 200 times. Mm-hmm. And it just felt it was like, oh, this is in my car. Like this Christian nationalism is in my car. It's like in my face. Um, the abortion bans, you know, trans families of kids, uh, trans kids who have been receiving gender affirming care, having to exit the state, flee the state. Um, so things are not great, obviously, but I will say, um, Amani Perry, who, um, is a Southern author said, as goes the South goes the nation. And I truly believe that the South is one of the most radical places right now for organizers and politics and everything that we're doing, um, is like, when you think about the challenges and barriers that we face every day, the fact that we are pushing back in, in such visible, um, and organized ways is a very big deal. Uh, and one of the reasons, like I said, I reached out to you to begin with is because of Paolo with the Outrun Coalition. He's done a lot of things, and his group, like other groups, have supported you um, to kind of encourage candidates in more rural areas, to more diverse candidates where they might not be usually recruited. Um, but someone else might say, hey, you guys care about these issues. It's a lost cause in a state like Tennessee. It's a lost cause in a state like Kentucky or Mississippi. Why don't you, why don't you just move? Why don't you go, Ohio's easier. It's, it's tough, but why don't you move there? Um, you can go to Indiana, uh, Illinois and you'll win. Or maybe you know, there's not that many people in Iowa. Maybe if you get enough people. What do you tell people about that, about not giving up and, and uh, you know, continuing that fight even if it's uphill? So I think if the critique is coming from outside of a red state, it's that that's a very privileged position to yeah. take to ask people to move because most of like a lot of the trans rural activists that I deal with are, um, you know, supporting other trans rural organizers and community members um, in their own way. And they don't have the ability, the finances, the network support to move out of state. So I think right now, like we are in protective mode. We are making sure that our, that our people are safe because we keep us safe. Um, in terms of people like me moving out of state, I, (laughs) it's funny you ask that because I've had a lot of friends move who have been committed to the movement for a long time. And I've told them like no hard feelings, everyone, Mm you've done your part. You've done your part to rebuild democracy in a state like Tennessee. I just know that my time isn't up. Mm -hmm. And I do think that like we are on the precipice of something that is transformative and I want to be part of it. Like I ran on, you know, joining the Justins and building the systems that we're going to see for the next hundred years because our current systems are crumbling. And I think the more people that like me that get into politics at the local and state level, and continue to fight back against this, I mean, just extremism. I mean, it's not even, we're not even talking like a Massachusetts Republican legislature. We are talking about the most extreme legislature in the country, probably besides Idaho, which has been bought and sold by white supremacists. Um, I can't leave, right? Like I grew up here. I believe in a better Tennessee. I've got, you know, family here. My parents live here. My boyfriend has a trans son. I mean, it's, it's leaving it's planting the seeds so that a state like Tennessee is better for everyone in a in hundred years. And, you know, I mentioned the outrun coalition. If you're thinking about like this, leaving these people behind, not you, but like anyone else, you can't outrun that kind of hate and just assume that it's going to stay contained in a state like Tennessee. Right. Yeah. That's a great, yeah. I think that's a, that's an, yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. And I think especially, I mean, even purple states, like there's anti-trans, you know, trans violent, anti-trans violence, 
um, everywhere. It just seems more heightened in Tennessee because they can get away with it. And there's not a lot of accountability. Um, but it is really scary. I mean, I will say like Matt Walsh, um, who's lived in Nashville, organized a national anti-trans rally and it was terrifying. Like I went, obviously I protested, um, and Nashville has become the epicenter of anti-trans organizing the entire country. Um, and so when I say like our people are under attack, like we're getting right wing, we had to cancel trans day of visibility this year because of right wing violent threats. Um, my, a reporter in Tennessee's house was shot into while his kids were sleeping. I mean, that's the level of political violence we're dealing with. And I think people like me who come from a lot of privilege, who have a lot of privilege and now a very, you know, uh, occupy a position of power. That's just not an option for me <laughs> leaving the state right now. So I, I can understand, like I've been involved in politics for most of my life. Um, and I can under, I remember like trying to understand positions I didn't agree with. So I understand why people would have a different opinion on healthcare because they have their own health insurance and they're afraid of it not working out right. I, I can understand people's opinions on, even though I am strongly in favor of anything we can do on climate change, I understand your, maybe some concern. I don't get the anti-trans stuff. Like if you're going to organize a rally against someone that you think is destructive, like go rally against health insurance companies, right? Like. I've had, I have personally had to deal with the frustrations of health insurance. The only trans people I know have never impacted my life negatively, aside from like what they brought to a potluck I didn't want to eat. Like it was not a problem. Do you, do the people that you see that have these, uh, that have these votes, do they really, is this really important to them or do they just feel like they have to? And what's worse, like sincerely disliking this vulnerable group? Or knowing it's BS and going along with it? Honestly, I think very few of them think it's BS. I think the the smarter, uh, more politically astute operatives leverage it in order to entice fear, you know, fear murder and, and bring people along with them. I mean, attending this Matt Walsh rally, I mean, it was, it the, the attendees were diverse. We're talking like, you know, religious kind of religious um far like far-right religious people women who were wearing makeup like long skirts i saw a lot of um like fraternity boys um i saw a lot of dressed up moms with pearls from williamson county which is the wealthiest county in tennessee what i think and you know what i've learned a lot from from analysis from you know podcasts etc is that the trans fear-mongering is at its core a response to the conservative movement and the destruction of the cis cisgender hetero family unit, the nuclear family unit. And, and what they've done is that they've is an identity issue, right. To bring people into their movement that literally believe, I mean, I was in Chicago for 24 hours fundraising. Um, and, I, I, you know, I was talking to this woman and she said, oh, you know, I love Matt. I love Matt Walsh. And I said, she goes, oh, Matt, you live, you're from Nashville. And I said, yes. And she goes, Matt Walsh lives in Nashville. And I go, oh, in my mind, I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh my God. And she said, yeah, you know, they're cutting off kids' genitals and they're selling, you know, those parts on the black market and they're doing this at, at institutions like Vanderbilt. And it was just, and I thought, oh my gosh, like here I am in Illinois in a deeply blue state, right? And I'm still hearing this anti-trans rhetoric. Um, I think, I think they've, especially the far right is good at 
stoking fears and weaponizing, you know, minor issues to make these into larger issues about the attacks on their, like their nuclear family or their religion. Um, and so, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. It's just hard for me to, it's really awful and hard for me to really grasp that level of heat. And I don't want to, I guess, but like I come, I have, I'm happily married with two kids uh, straight white male, age 18 to 40, 35 or whatever, like Homer Simpson would say. Um, and my kids, we had a trans friend who would come over for, uh, uh, trick or treating. So hand out candy while we went trick or treating. And, uh, sadly he's no longer with us. And, uh, right before 2020 and, uh, and we never got to go to his funeral and, uh, because of the pandemic. And so, but nothing happened to my kids other than they knew like Evan was a cool person. Like, they, they went and they've grown up to play Fortnite. Like, it doesn't affect them in any way whatsoever that they yeah. interacted with someone who was somewhat different. They've met gay people and they're like, oh, that person's gay. And then they go on to, like, you know, make a lot of noise and play Super Smash Brothers. It doesn't yeah. – kids don't think that way. No. Especially the younger generations. I mean, and I think that's why we see this, this end to the far right is because it's the last gasp of their dying power structure. And so in a state like Tennessee, they know, you know, the, I think you, you probably saw the study that um, millennials and Gen Z overwhelmingly, like 90% of them believe in unions and unionization. And it's just, I think the like we're shifting so far to the left, which is why you see these, these reactionary, um, you know, policy uh, responses from Republicans like banning TikTok, right? Because they think, oh, well, TikTok is radicalizing Gen Z and Gen Alpha to become more liberal. And it's like, no, we just, they grew up in a very diverse, gender fluid, you know, school and their communities. And it's just, they don't, they don't care about these things like, like boomers or, you know, older generations care about. So I do think I have a lot of hope, like, especially for our live students um, over the past few months, like I just have so much hope for these, for this generation. I mean, they're truly carrying this this country on their back, and I just hope to be, you know, play a small part in that as a state legislator. Well, I hope you will. I, I just quickly, and you will be a state legislator. It's a tough uphill battle. Um, as a state legislator, what do you think are the one or two things that you hope to either accomplish? Or try to lead against uh, that you feel like would it's important to have your voice there. So just you don't have to go into the detail, but like what are the one or two things that you think are the top priorities for you? Yeah. So uh, two, I think two policy portfolios. One is um, we have an, a, a deeply expanded surveillance state in Tennessee, um, and so you know the party of small government, right, um, is subpoena, subpoenaing healthcare records. They are tracking people who are supporting, helping people seek abortions out of state. Um, and I think there is a lot of opportunity in the Tennessee legislature, especially with the more, especially with the more libertarian leaning politicians to curtail and, and, um, and, and uh, yeah, curtail the, the expanded surveillance state. And so I think what I'm trying to do next year is bring a lot of transparency into the data that's being shared mm -hmm. so that our attorney general, you know, some, some, blockages and making sure that I can thwart some of the, you know, legal challenges that the attorney general throws at us, et cetera. And then the other policy portfolio is um, Tennessee has the most regressive sales tax in the country. And as we know, that disproportionately impacts low income people, black and brown people that live in Tennessee. 
Um, and so what I want to do is um, basically tax billionaires and corporations, um, more of the corporate, closing corporate tax loopholes, um, and then rerouting that money to pay for our schools, um, but basically eliminating the sales and grocery tax because it's just, I mean, it's, Marsha Blackburn just tweeting about how taxes have increased. And it's like, literally you did that when you were in the state legislature in Tennessee. We have, it's, it's just, um, it's untenable. So uh, yeah, so tax, tax policy, um, tax revision, and then uh, curtailing the expanded surveillance state. I mean, those seem like realistic and doable as a first start. That's good. That's smart. I think people often forget that people like you who have all this energy have a lot of policy solutions to things. Uh, um, right, right. You can't get that solution done unless you run for office. The podcast is called You Should Run. Based on what you've seen, the, the pluses and the struggles, um, what would you say to encourage other people, especially younger people and women, that they should consider running, especially for state legislatures across the country? Yeah, I think, as I forget who says, but state legislatures are, are the labs of democracy in our country. And I think the real fights are happening in state legislatures. And um, once elected, my, my general election September 14th, but once elected, I'll be the youngest woman serving in the Tennessee House at 33 and the only woman uh, representing Nashville in the Tennessee House. And so I think, you know, especially in more gender uh, equitable legislatures representation, you know, it, it always matters. But in a state like Tennessee, it especially matters. And so when you're dealing with the most extreme abortion ban in the, in the country, when you're dealing with legislation that direct, that anti-female, um, anti-women, anti, you know, gender pay gap legislation, that there has to be someone with your voice that has, has your lived reality and your experiences in political spaces at the table, um, you know, as I like to say, caring loudly for the issues that you care about. And so um, I hope that, you know, you, I hope you are inspired to run. You, your voice is important um, and that you have a community of people who want to see you thrive um, and build something for the future. With that in mind, uh, people are definitely going to want to get in touch with you or at least follow you, learn what you're doing and maybe ask some questions. What's the best way that people can connect with you um, uh, through social media or online? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's my first and last name on Twitter, and the website is my first and last name.com. That's easy. So there, thankfully, there wasn't another Afton Bain running for no, office. I'm the only one in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> I think that was hopefully, I don't know, intentional by my parents. But yeah, it's made my political career a little, a little easier. I did talk with someone from Rhode Island who, when her and her husband got married, they merged their names so that no one else would have those names. So they're the only people in the world that have their names as a result, which makes them easy to Google, I guess. Yep, that's right. Well, you're easy to Google too. There's so much to learn. I really encourage everyone to look out for Afton, find out what you're doing, and um, maybe you'll be inspired to run for office too. Thank you so much and best of luck in Tennessee. Thank you. Bye, Tony. Thank you.